if you're listening fast or not. And if you're not, then I may have to go back and repeat some things to make sure you got them. So, uh, uh, but the nice thing is, I'm probably going to come back to it if I've already said it and you didn't get it the first time. You'll probably hear it the second or third time that I say it coming from a different direction. So now, if you would, please stand together with me as I read in your hearing from the Word of God a very familiar text from Luke chapter 9 or Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 19 now hear the word of our God and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed and this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria and all went to be taxed everyone into his own city and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary as a spouse wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts saying, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And thus concludes this reading from God's holy word. May he write his truth on all of our hearts. You can be seated. We have, of course, in our text, a big event. Some of the gladdest tidings that anyone will ever hear have to do with the birth of a child, a son, a daughter, or a grandchild. It's natural for parents to announce the birth of their children, and it's natural for those who are close to the parents to anxiously await the news that the child has arrived. And normally we know that a birth is coming, and we know when it's near, and we generally have some idea about when the labor may have begun. So it's not a surprise when the message comes across that a baby's been born. And even so, we regard it as good tidings indeed, although it's no surprise. The birth of God's Son is similar, but it's unique. When a normal baby is born, only a limited number of people are affected by that birth. But in the case of Jesus, of course, the entire world, the entire human race was affected by His birth, by His coming into the world. And that Jesus was born was good tidings to all people. This is true even if they had lived and died without ever having any knowledge of His coming without ever believing on Him. 
The faithful remnant in Israel were <coughs> waiting for that coming. They knew it was coming. Some of them knew it was soon. But even they were not aware of how near it was. Some wise men way off to the east knew something was about to happen, but they didn't even fully comprehend what it was. And until this announcement came that we read in our text, a soul, only a small handful of people directly related to Mary of Nazareth, only that small group knew that that virgin girl was carrying in her womb the incarnate Son of God who was the promised Messiah. There had been many babies born before this, but there had never been one like this. Having God as his father and a virgin as his mother. As one plain-spoken person put it, when he saw the Grand Canyon for the first time, with no idea in advance what he was about to view, said something really big must have happened here. And indeed, something really big happened in our story, as familiar as it is, as many times as you've heard it, as many times as you've watched Charlie Brown's Christmas and heard Schroeder or Linus, whichever one it was, quote this passage, something big really happened here. It's a big announcement. It's a big event, and there's a big, big events get big announcements. The lead angel announces it first in verse 10, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be all to be to all people, and the rest of the angels join in in verse 13. And upon hearing it, the shepherds went to see it for themselves, and as verse 17 indicates, they followed through by telling others also, and with effect, by the way, because those that heard it wondered. With the state of the church today, I'm compelled to point out that neither the angels nor the shepherds adapted the message to the felt needs of those that they delivered it to. They just reported it as they were given it. Because it is what people need to hear, whether they understand that, whether they believe that, or whether they even come to hear it. It is what they need to hear. And I'm happy to point out that once the good news was out, they didn't change the subject to something else. They kept telling it. In verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. They stuck to the message, and that is the good tidings that a Savior's come into the world. There's quite a party that night. That's a big celebration, a big event, and a big announcement, and a big celebration. Quite a party. The good tidings proclaimed brought joy to the speakers as well as the hearers. Produced just the right sort of response, too. The kind of response that every preacher wants when he preaches. He wants to drive people, hopefully, in the direction of Jesus. And that's just exactly what happened here. People were driven in the direction of Jesus and not from behind. They were driven from something within. Something inside said, I've got to go see him. I've got to go be with him. I've got to know him for myself. You get a lot more by proclaiming Christ in the way of that desire than you do from kicking them with a lot of rules. Now that's the text. And I've hardly scratched the surface of the text. But it's going to have to be enough for now because I'm going to talk to you about what isn't in the immediate context, but probably clearer in the passage that Joe read for us. 
And that is that 4,000 years of preparation and expectation that came before the event and came before the announcement and came before the celebration. And that's the preparation. The reason why the good tidings were good tidings, the reason why they were the occasion of a party, is the condition that the world was in because of sin. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. I commend a book to you by Cornelius Plantinga by that title, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a breviary of sense, masterful work on the subject of sin. And this world is just not the way it's supposed to be. And whenever I think about the condition of the world, I think about it in the context of what I learned from that book. And I would, I would encourage you to read the book so that when you think about the condition of the world in sin, you've got that broad context and that, that deep familiarity with what Plantinga has to say in it. But that leads me to the subject today, and that is Advent. Today marks the third Sunday of Advent this year. Advent, you may or may not be familiar with it, so please, if I seem pedantic, I'm not talking down to you. I just, I know where you come from, okay? You come from the same revivalistic culture of American evangelicalism, probably, that I came from. Uh, I was never in a liturgical church. Uh, I was saved in a revivalistic church. And uh, that was nice for the time, but after a while I began to ache for something that had some, something more, I don't know, meaning to it, more depth to it, more profundity to it than just turning cartwheels and shouting hallelujah at crummy gospel music. But what, what, uh, <laughs> what else is there, you know? And I knew there was something lacking. Uh, I, I knew the Christmas, the way we celebrate it in the world, was missing something. And so, okay, we're going to have a Christian Christmas. And what does that mean? Well, that means we don't have Santa Claus. You know, we, 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 we put him out of the picture, and now we've got a Christian Christmas. And that didn't really seem to do it. And I knew there, there, there's just this big hole. And I don't know exactly, you know, I can't take you through the whole series of epiphanies and things that happened, but, but I began to read and I began to learn a little bit about, you know, What's missing here? And I began to understand some things about the church year. And I'm not a liturgist. Uh, I'm, I'm, certain, I'm not a sacramentalist. But there's real wisdom in the centuries before us that I think we ran away from in a very reckless way. Somewhere before most of you came on the scene, before I came on the scene, the church got the idea that what they were here for was to see as many people converted as they could and they began to convert Sunday morning into an evangelistic service instead of a place and a time for Christians to worship God in a distinctly Christian way. And they started eliminating things like the public confession of sin, and benedictions, and absolutions, or at least assurance of pardon. Anything that would make unbelievers uncomfortable that you might be just fine in a midweek revival service, got one by one removed from the Sunday morning service, 
And now the church is so confused that they think people who deny the Trinity and are shills for TBN and preach the prosperity gospel are genuine Christians. Because, and I think part of that is because they've never worshipped God in a distinctly Trinitarian way. And one of the things that Advent does, it, it, it doesn't have a distinctly Trinitarian message to it, although it's always there in the church year. But, but, but it's just one of those things that we let go of because we thought, well, that's not going to be comfortable for unbelievers. And besides, our Rome radar goes off, anything having to do with the church year. You know, no, no, no. You know, that's Catholic. Well, with a small c, it might be good. You know, so is the virgin birth. I mean, come on, they believe that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't. So I'm not trying to make liturgists out of you, nor am I trying to make sacramentalists out of you. I'm not one myself. But I have, over the years, come to greatly appreciate this season of Advent. And Advent is not another name for Christmas. Advent is the season that precedes and prepares for Christmas. If you used to be a Lutheran or an Anglican or a Catholic, you know that. I didn't know that. I came up and again, I was converted into a revivalistic environment in American evangelicalism. I was never part of a congregation that observed the church here. And, and I kind of got it wrong at first, but it was easy to explain how that happens. Because I'm thinking, okay, first coming, first advent. Second coming, second advent. And so it's, you know, advent is about his coming and Christmas is when we celebrate His coming. So what we'll do is we'll call what we're doing, which is basically a kind of a baptized, sanitized version of commercial Christmas, and, uh, and we'll call that Advent. But that's not Advent. That's a baptized, sanitized, decommercialized, celebrating Christmas too early. <laughs> it's not Advent. Advent is the start of the church year, the time of the year when Christians are encouraged to pay extra attention to humbling ourselves and to remember that we are a waiting people. In our time, and I mean across the span of the centuries, that's a time from Genesis 1-1, in our time, the bride of Christ is waiting for the bridegroom to return. And as a called out people, we have been doing that for just a short time short of two millennia. Advent, though, puts it on the calendar lest we forget about it. Every year it comes around and reminds us we are a waiting people, that all God's promises have not yet been fulfilled and I love Christmas. What sane person doesn't love Christmas? And by Christmas, I mean the season of the church year called Christmas. I don't mean consumer Christmas, but I value Advent even more than Christmas because it does me more good than Christmas because it's a time for repentance, a time for humbling, a time for remembering and a time for slapping your hand and saying, wait, you can't have it all now. The 12 days of Christmas, which begin on Christmas Eve, by the way, uh, they're a celebration of the fulfillment of God's promise. Then we can say, I can enjoy some of this. It's the arrival of God's 
king and his first coming. But the four Sundays of Advent recall that before Christ came, there were four millennia of waiting for that fulfillment. So for four Sundays, hope, peace, joy, love. I can remember, I, I grew up in a suburb of New York City till I was about 12 years old. Actually, several of them, but, but just outside, uh, where I'm from, you know, they say New Yorkers have a bad attitude, and the reason why is on the other side of the tunnels, New Jersey. Well, right where the tunnel comes out, that's where I grew up. And there are all these little towns, right, New York City, so kind of like maybe um, downtown Arlington Heights, downtown Palatine. They had downtown areas, but they were all suburbs, bedroom communities for New York City, but they all had a downtown. And in every one of those little downtowns, they would hang banners off the street lights with the words hope, joy, peace, and love. And again, I'm completely ignorant of what any of that meant until I began to learn about Advent, and I learned that each of the Sundays of Advent has a theme, hope, peace, joy, this week, third week, and love. And there's other things that come along with it, it things that are done to observe it besides just getting a piece of candy every day, which is fine, I'm not against that. But there was four millennia, and so for four Sundays, we say, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. Because we're awaiting people. It's coming, but not yet. You can't have it yet. Advent recalls that his work was not completed even when he came. And in order for it to be completed, he has to come again someday. But it also reminds us that in the meantime, he's not inactive. He's doing something even now. So Advent's the season set aside by the broader, deeper, more ancient church to intentionally remember that we wait for the rest of God's promises to be fulfilled. And it is a time where we keep in mind that Christ came, Christ is coming, but that He also comes. He came, He's coming, and He comes to us, even now, in the meantime. If you're not locked into the kind of prophetic sensationalism promoted by televangelists, you may be familiar with the tension known as the already-not-yet tension in the kingdom. When people talk about that, what they mean is, He has come, the kingdom is, already, now, the kingdom of God is within you, we are in the kingdom, but this ain't all there is to the kingdom. It's not like all of our eschatological hopes are out there in the future, and they're not in the past. There's some eschatological fulfillment now, but there's more to come. And we're in the kingdom now, but we're not in the kingdom the way we're going to be in the kingdom when the kingdom comes in all of its fullness. It is, and yet there's more to come. Christ came, but He has to come again. And He left, but He's here. 
And you can probably see there's a tension there, and there's almost a contradiction there, and it might seem silly and nonsensical, but I think if you're indwelt by the Spirit of God, something is saying, you know, I, I think I get that. <laughs> I believe I get that. I believe I understand that. That's, you know, when I heard it, I thought, boy, that simplifies so much. I had the charts, man. I had all the stuff on, all the charts drawn out and laid out, all these complicated things, and then when you realize you know, take Occam's razor and apply it to the subject. The simple explanation is usually the best, and it's either kingdom already or kingdom not yet. <laughs> and it's just, oh, that's so simple. It's so, it's so liberating. I don't have to find a place where that fits on my chart because it doesn't go along with everything else on the chart. I can just accept that that's okay. It's here in some way, and it's coming in another way later on. The first coming belongs to the already. The second coming belongs to the not yet. But that's just the beginning. It may seem nonsensical, but it shouldn't. It's as biblical as the doctrine of the Trinity. Three persons, one being. It's as biblical as the doctrine of the hypostatic union of two natures in Christ, 100% divine and 100% man. This is not an unfamiliar way of understanding scriptural things. Two things uh, uh, that seem to be contradictory and yet are both nevertheless true. It's a strange reality that we actually embrace this time of the year that Christ came. That should be more or less obvious. We celebrate it as good tidings every year, as does a good portion of the rest of the world, even if they really don't understand it. Only the most unreasonable people would deny that Christ came. That is probably the easiest part to understand. That He is coming is clearly promised, whether or not anyone in particular believes it. You couldn't read the Bible with an open and honest mind without coming away with a conviction that Jesus promised to come back. He taught it clearly, as did the apostles. And if all the most prestigious so-called Christian institutions in the world denied it, and the most brilliant biblical scholars and all the most respected institutions denied it. It wouldn't change anything. He said he was coming back, and he's coming back. And he keeps his promises, so he's coming back. That's not hard to understand either. And that's glad tidings, good tidings to know he's coming back. And when he does, he will make things the way they are supposed to be. And so we're awaiting people. We're waiting for that day. But our waiting is not in despair. We wait in hope for the welcome announcement that Jesus has returned. And you won't read about it in the newspaper or hear about it on CNN if CNN will continue to exist after he returns, which is very questionable. But you'll know otherwise. In the meantime, along with our hope, we experience joy and peace and love. Because while He's coming, He's here. And while things are not all together the way that they're supposed to be, they're more like they're supposed to be in me than they used to be. Imperfectly, of course, we have peace and joy and love. Later on, we'll have perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect love, and no need for hope. But humbly and patiently and trustingly, we await those things coming 
into this world in perfection and in inexpressible and overpowering fullness that will then be the gladdest tidings that the world ever heard. Advent simply means appearance. When we speak of Advent, we speak about the time of year in the Christian year while we repent and humble ourselves and think about what Christ did for us when He appeared, what He's going to do for us when He appears again, and what He's doing for us every time He shows up on the scene, if you will. It's all good tidings. When we talk about what He did for us, we're talking about already the first coming. When we talk about what He will do for us, we're talking about not yet, the second coming. When we talk about what He's doing for us, we're talking about the way that He comes between the comings. In our hemisphere, during Advent, the days are dark. They're growing shorter. We have a sense that things are coming to an end, and yet... We know that when they end, they start over. Naturally speaking, because the days are getting shorter, we are longing for the light intensely at times. We long for the opportunity to see the light. And spiritually speaking, when Advent rolls around, we long for the dawn, as it were. Again, back to referencing the passage that Joe read for you. I'm looking forward to the solstice. It's just a few days away. It's going to get colder after the solstice than it is right now. I would bank on that. But the days are going to get longer. And so even though, man, it's 20 below and there's a wind chill factor of 60 below, there's more daylight today than yesterday. And that means summer's coming. It will get here. We'll hit that equinox and then... And then the days are going to be more daylight rather than more dark. We look forward to the solstice, even though the temperatures get colder and stay that way for three or four months, because we know solstice will get, I mean, the equinox will get here, and then the summer solstice will get here, and then they start to wane again. You know, we also get anxious to celebrate the incarnation like we did 12 months ago, the coming into the world of the true light of the world, chasing the darkness away. And I know we're, we're sort of in a pickle here because we would be such weirdos if we didn't sing any Christmas carols before Christmas and waited till after Christmas and for the next three weeks sang Christmas carols. And everybody would be saying, why are you singing Christmas carols? Christmas is over. That's because they don't understand. Christmas just began. Christmas doesn't start till Christmas Eve. Right now we're in Advent. But if you did anything, you know, according to that calendar, people would just say, you know, that person's lost their mind. They're running, they're running a month behind. <laughs> so I understand there's, you know, we have to adapt somewhat because of pressure around us. But if you understand what Advent is, you can at least try to, you know, operate within some no with some knowledge of it in some way. We are anxious for the coming into the world of more light. And the world, as depicted in Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, was anxious for the coming into the world of the true light, 
to chase the darkness away and to bring warmth and joy and hope along with it. I think that's one of the differences between Christianity and false religion that can be seen really clearly in this. Because whatever the false religion name is, whatever name it carries, it's always about what man does for God. But the Christian message is about what God does and what God did do and what God will do for us. False religion admonishes us to light our little candles instead of cursing the darkness, as if we could. As if, if we could, it would do any good. But the Christian faith proclaims an incredible, penetrating, brilliant light from above, bursting into the darkness that was occupied by helpless, confounded paralytics that couldn't even strike a match to light the candle if we had a match, if we had a candle, if we had a striker, and we don't, and if we took our whole life trying, that's assuming we knew how to do it, and we're blind and couldn't see the match, or the striker, or the candle, if we struck the match, and we couldn't find the match to light it with. <laughs> so how in the world am I going to light a candle rather than curse the darkness? But light broke in in the darkness, and bathed the world in light. And subsequently, those who were there were overcome with joy. And said, so, well, he was there, and now he's gone, and he's not back yet. And here we are, we're stuck between the two comings. Well, we can ponder yet that he came, and he went, and he is to come, but that he comes. He comes to us. How does that work, is the question. Philip Dotteridge, in a hymn, Hark the Glad Sound, said, He comes, the prisoners to release. And Satan's bondage held, the gates of brass before him burst, the iron fetters yield. He comes, from thickest films of vice, to clear the mental ray, and on the eyeballs of the blind, to pour a celestial day. There's your light and darkness. He comes. The broken heart to bind, the bleeding soul to cure, and with the treasures of His grace to enrich the humble poor. That's what I mean when I talk about He who comes now. He came yesterday, He's coming tomorrow, but every day between His resurrection and His return, He comes. He comes in a number of ways, and primarily among them, He comes through His proclaimed Word he comes through the elements of the Lord's Supper. I said, I'm not a sacramentalist, but I firmly believe that whenever God's people observe the Lord's table, something is happening and it's good. I wouldn't overrate it, but I was kind of brought up with the doctrine of the divine absence. You know, and it was, we spent so much time making sure everybody understood that nothing was happening when we had the Lord's Supper that you always wondered, why do we even bother? Something good is happening. Christ is being delivered to you just like He's being delivered to you when the Word is being preached. Nothing more, but nothing less. No magical transformation of anything, but it's getting the gospel another way. And you always benefit when you get the gospel. 
Something is happening and it's good. And the good tidings for us are that He came, He's coming, and He comes to us today. He's coming to you now and every Sunday when you gather in His name. When you come to a church like Embassy Church, not to get life points or life, or excuse me, life tips or action points, but you come to a church like this because you want to hear Christ proclaimed. And you get to observe communion. And people may say they meet with Him other ways and in other places. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. But there's only one place where He has promised to meet you. And He's promised to meet you when His church gathers in His name to receive His gifts offered in His name. And it is there, first and foremost, that He comes. In a sense, this is an anticipation a foretaste of heaven, of Christ's return, of Christ coming and making all things the way they are supposed to be. This is as close as you're going to get people between now and when that trumpet blows. He is here and he comes to release the prisoners from Satan's bondage, to open blind eyes, to heal broken, bleeding souls, to nourish the empty and the famished, to refresh the parched. His threefold coming is all part of the wonder and the mystery and the reality that belongs to the season of Advent. So try to keep that in mind as the days pass between now and Christmas. Yes, He came. And he's coming. But he comes. He came to you this morning. Somebody could have done a better job in bringing him, but he comes to you every time that Christ is preached. The church has been saying for years, we need to put Christ back into Christmas. We need to make Starbucks put ho, ho, ho on the cups or whatever. You know, silly, stupid. Everything that's wrong with evangelical, American evangelicalism is reflected in the Christmas wars as far as I'm concerned. But, but Advent is not just putting Christ back in Christmas. Advent, as it was intended to be, is what we need to disciple us and deepen our faith in Christ while a carnival of consumerism is going on around us, the one the world puts on every December, how do you resist it? What's the antidote? You know, to some, I mean, in some ways, the coming of Christmas is bad news. And I don't mean a Christian Christmas, but a consumer Christmas. It's bad news, not good news. Consumer Christmas promotes covetousness and materialism. But I have good tidings for you. Advent gets us ready for a Christian Christmas because it encourages Christians to have a proper attitude towards possessions because it teaches us that waiting and faith and hope, even in times when it seems no reason to have them, those are indispensable to the Christian life. Advent humbles us with waiting. It prepares our hearts to receive and to welcome Christ. It is the antidote for the commercial frenzy, and it's a template for our lives that we wait because we ain't going to get it all right away. But we will get it all. Consumer Christmas exploits the fact that by nature we are avaricious. 
When gift coming time rolls around, we think about getting more stuff. But I have good tidings for you. Advent gets us ready for a Christian Christmas because it whispers to us that the world's treasures are temporary. The scripture readings and the hymns that are set aside for this time of year proclaim that the world will end and soon. And all our material possessions, the things we so ardently wish for and cherish and don't want to let go, are going to be burned to ashes. Consumer Christmas promises us that the presents we will get or give this year will deliver what we truly desire. They never have before, but this year we'll get what we really want. But I have good tidings for you. Advent gets us ready for a Christian Christmas because it tells us that what we really want, whether we want, realize it or not, even if we're distracted by the baubles and bubbles, is to be joined to our Creator who made us in His image. Advent hymns like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and come thou long expected Jesus, resonate with that yearning. And only the Son of God who comes in human flesh in a manger and dies on the cross can satisfy it, and He will soon fulfill that desire. Advent comes our frantic wanting and points us to a manger where after four millennia of preparation and darkness, the Word of God, the light of the world, takes on mortal flesh. And once crucified, He blots out all our sins with His blood. He ascends to the Father. He sends His Holy Spirit to indwell us and to make us partakers of the divine nature. And He alone is our heart's true desire. Advent reminds us that we're empty and hungry, waiting for the meal that we cannot provide ourselves, waiting for the light that we cannot make for ourselves, and that the one who will provide both will soon appear. Waiting. Consumer Christmas has managed to twist that idea, waiting for the coming of a number of utterly Christless things. That's what everybody's waiting, right? I just can't wait till Christmas. What are you waiting for? Something utterly Christless, right? Christless things for Christless people. They got the not yet part, but they don't know what it is that they're waiting for. But I have good news for I have good tidings. Evans gets us ready for a Christian Christmas because it recalls to us that a life of faith means that what we want is not yet here, but we groan in the meantime and hear God's Word and cling to His promises and endure suffering with hope. I wish you could say that your natural life was one big Advent season. But if we can at least have it for four weeks, you know, we've done a lot in helping ourselves with the rest of the year. We're always called to be watchful. We're always called to ponder our sinfulness and our mortality and our need for our Savior and our longing for a better world where things are the way they're supposed to be. We ought to practice that year-round, but this is the time where we embrace it. I mean, just, just, yeah, give me that. 
Let's not hurry Christmas up. Let's just wrap our arms tightly around this idea that we're broken in a broken world and it's dark and it's cold and it's empty and it's more messed up than I can describe. But we're not hopeless in it. Put on a happy face and pretend that everything's going to be fine because everything isn't going to be fine until Jesus finally returns. But you can be fine while everything is falling apart around you. You can somehow manage through. Embrace it and with repentance and faith await the one who came in mortal flesh to die and will come again in immortal flesh. Consumer Christmas retains a few vestiges of the Christian faith and it welcomes a mixture of things both good and bad. A sloppy sentimentalism has replaced real, real piety here, but I have good tidings for you. Advent gets us ready for a Christmas, Christian Christmas because it welcomes the Son of God. You know, Mary wasn't the only character that Luke tells us about being ready to welcome the Son of God when He came. There's Elizabeth and Zacharias and John the Baptist, Anna the prophetess, Simeon the priest. They all welcomed the Son of God in their unique circumstances. And don't they make a wonderful picture of the church? From the infant John to the young adult Mary, the mature Joseph, middle-aged Zach and Liz, and aged Anna and Simeon all together worshiping, coming together, poised and waiting, ready to welcome Jesus Christ at His first coming. That's what we are, waiting for Jesus Christ at His next. We are not alone. We have one another. There are those who came before us, and there are those who are coming behind us. And Christ is with us, as He was with those before us, as He is with those after us, and even now, we long to welcome Him as they did. And we do so by hearing His Word, receiving it in faith. Because wherever and whenever His Word is proclaimed to us, Christ comes and is present with us. And the Holy Spirit working through the Word creates faith in us. And we are filled with His presence. So I ask you to join me, but not just me. Join the entire church. Join the church triumphant across time and oceans and continents and remember with an innumerable company of angels in the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven and, the, uh, uh, and God the judge of all and the spirits of just men made perfect. Remember that Christ came. Christ is coming. And Christ is present with us now. I've got two more pages, but I'm finished. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know there is in all people the longing for a more perfect world. Because of sin, it cannot be realized in this one. But we belong to a more perfect kingdom even now. And we love and serve our perfect coming King who is present in our midst by His promise. We await His conquest of the kingdoms of this world and the day that He is rightly crowned as sovereign ruler over them all. May we keep this in mind as we enjoy what the world is calling now the holiday season. And we reject the consumerism of it. 
We reject pagan elements woven into it. But may we embrace the wisdom of the church of the centuries before that set up this cycle that before we have our parties, we have our fastings and our repentance and our humblings and our reminders that we don't deserve it at all anyway. And we don't get it now. But by your immeasurable grace, you will pour out upon us streams in the desert, the oil of joy for mourning, the, uh, the garment of beauty for this, uh, or the garment of beautiful garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness all of that's coming when you come may it be soon may we be faithful until then in jesus name we ask amen